You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Welcome, everyone. So today I'm speaking with someone who is both a client and a friend, and he has been covering the precious metals markets for over 30 years now. His name is Larry Scharf, and he is the Senior Vice President at Raymond James in Connecticut. I will make available his details on the website, so for anybody that's interested in speaking with him, please go to www.capitalistexploits.at for his details. Larry, it's great to talk to you here. Why don't you give us a little bit of background as to how you got into the industry of money management and wealth management, what your particular focus um, is now and, and what it's quite frankly been for some time. Okay, great. Well, it's great to be here, Chris. Thank you very much. Um, I actually began my industry, my career when I was about five years old. I didn't know it at the time, but I was a coin collector. And I used to, uh, you know, take uh, great care in finding different dates of pennies and nickels and so forth. And, uh, of course, when I was uh, that age, coinage was still silver. Had I known, I would have kept every last bit of it I could have, you know, got my hands on. Um, but over the many years, as I, you know, continued my interest in rare coins, eventually in college, I ran into someone who was getting newsletters from people like James Dines and Harry Brown and Howard Ruff and um, folks of that nature and um, Richard Russell and uh, began getting very interested in finance and how the world worked and having had some background of history of coinage and therefore of money uh, it was very much uh, like you know I, I latched onto it immediately and uh, in fact the first book in my library was The War on Gold by Anthony Sutton which I had read uh, very shortly after then and began building a fairly substantial financial library filled with books of financial history technical analysis, fundamental psychological analysis and um, books about various market wizards through the the eons. So uh, my first major uh, career move was in Minneapolis at a firm called Investment Rarities. They were a gigantic uh, firm that sold rare coins, bullion, and a host of other different types of things. And I had a lot of exposure to, uh, in that cycle, which was in the early 80s, a lot of newsletter writers like the Aiden Sisters, uh, Mark Skousen at the time, there was Gary North, there was Howard Ruff, there were a lot of folks, and Doug Casey, uh, his original book from that period of time, and so on, and um, developed, um, began developing relationships in the mid-1980s with mining executives, because it was around 1984-85 that heat bleaching began uh, its prominence in the industry. It was a new technology, and uh, I began, began cutting my teeth on companies uh, at that time that were called Pegasus, Echo Bay, Battle Mountain Gold, um, and I be- began speaking with uh, Rob McEwen. Uh, when Gold Corp wasn't even mining anything yet, the miners were on strike, he hadn't even built the company, so to speak, and we became very friendly and began speaking every month or two, and uh, we still speak, you know, often to this day. 
Uh, I also began a relationship with Paul Penna, who was the founder of Agnico Eagle, and I used to travel up there with my family for their annual meetings, and we would spend some time together. And I began, you know, talking with these mining executives who were not getting any calls from advisors, much less in the U.S., um, and they were welcoming, you know, the phone calls as I was, you know, buying a lot of stock. There was a firm called Glamis Gold that I became very, very involved in. The MacArthur family was running it. It was highly successful. And um, that's really where, you know, I started my, I guess, career and my, um, my, my networking in the, the mining stock part of the gold industry. And um, through the years, although I maintained a more balanced money management business, uh, I always had this side interest in metals and have clients that uh, I trade only those things for. Um, and uh, when the cycles came around, I was very involved. And as you know, it has been cyclical. And when the downturns came, we moved on to other things. And, um, you know, the uh, one of the greatest rewards of my life was in uh, – October 1st of 2001, when I pushed all the chips into the middle of the table, and uh, you know we bought gold and Asia and commodity stocks and uh, rode a great wave up. And uh, of course, as you know, the cycle ended around May of 2011, and uh, in January once again became you know up to my knees in gold stocks and up to my eyeballs very shortly thereafter. And um, we've had a very good run in this particular cycle too. So it's always been a an interest of mine, um, I, I find gold to be a very um, intellectual pursuit because it, it's, you can stave off into all different types of uh, financial discussions, but as the root of money, it always seemed to me to be a very important asset class and something uh, to understand. But as you know, Chris, it's very there are so many things about the gold market that we don't know and that we will never know because so much of the um, – bullion transactions are done behind closed doors and in secrecy between governments. Um, so there's a lot of cloak and dagger stuff that goes on with it, which is kind of, um, you know, sexy or interesting in a way, but you know, we, just, we just can't know what we don't know. Uh, so I hope that somewhat so, answers the question. Let's dig in a little bit too, because one of the things that you mentioned, Larry, was the, the cycle. So you mentioned, you know, May 2011 when the sort of cycle ended. What is your take on where we're at in the cycle now? Well, it seems to me that we're early. You know, we've had a, uh, some people think that we've only had a cyclical uh, drop within a secular bull market and that the drop of the last five years was nothing but a correction uh, on something that's ongoing. And I suppose, you know, that's semantics. You can look at it either way you like. Uh, but it seems to me we've only had about a 20% lift from the, or 30% lift from the lows on bullion. Um, the world is a much more screwed up place financially, leverage wise, debt wise, currency wise than it was eight years ago, in my opinion. And I think um, also geopolitically. I think that's one uh, thing that, that's. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 there, yeah. yeah. Socially, there are social tensions, there are political tensions, there are geopolitical tensions, there's financial tensions. Um, yeah, we can go off and display into a lot of different areas today, if you wish. But uh, I think we're early. I think we're going to go to new highs. Uh, negative interest rates seem like the central bankers are hell bent on continuing to prove Einstein wrong, and they're going to continue to do the same thing and hope for a different result. And um, 
we may very well see gold at two or three times the current price. I, I don't have an upside projection. I don't know how anybody could make one, uh, although many people feel it necessary to do so. It, the direction is up. I don't know what the number is going to be, but uh, I mean, that may be uh, yeah, the number. No, look, I mean, I think there's, there's two factors as well in terms of a price appreciation. You have time over price, right? So you take any commodity and say, you know, it's going to double. Well, what, over what time frame? I think over given, you know, if you if you take a long enough time frame, given fractional reserve banking, it's a it's a pretty much a guaranteed result that you will have a doubling of price. So, um, time frame I think is also important. If we look back then and, and look at historical cycles, we've had this a cyclical market where we're halfway, roughly maybe halfway through that first stage of the cyclical market ended around uh, mid twenty eleven. Um, it's been through the trough and now we're coming out the other side of it. Um, and if that is the case, and I'm not saying it is, but that would be a, a realistic supposition to make. If that is the case, then on a time frame basis, it's probably, as a guess, it's probably fair to say that within the next three years, we will likely see a new high. I would concur with that. I, I would say we're only six months into this move. We've had magnificent runs from the gold shares, um, as one famous uh, gold stock uh, guru has said, we dropped 83% from the highs. So that means we have to go up 432% just to break even. Now, we've gained a good portion of that back in many companies. But I would, since we're only six months into this move, I would dare say you're correct. I'd say we have at least a three-year run ahead of us, and it may be longer. I mean, the uh, you know, the uh, 82, we had several small cycles in the 80s and 90s. The 2000 cycle was, what, uh, six years to the crash, or seven years to the crash, and then a couple of years after it. Uh, so uh, I don't know the time frame either. Uh, who is it? Uh, Richard Russell used to say, no one can predict the length or duration of a bull or a bear market. Very wise words. So if, if you're looking at sort of asset classes, we can look at bullion as almost as a separate asset class because it doesn't have counterparty risk. It, um, it doesn't have um, management risk, for example. If we're looking at stocks, mining stocks, then we're taking on a whole set of new um, aspects to it. One can be leverage, one can be management risks, one can be um, oh, liquidity risk, um, political risk, depending on the jurisdiction of the, um, the assets held by the company, all those sorts of things. So how do you go about position sizing you know those two almost separate asset classes which are interconnected in that the production of the end good comes from the actual the mining companies okay that's a double-barreled question so um, I've always taken the stance and I'm always open to counter suggestions that bullion and mining stocks are two very different asset class two very different parts of your portfolio um, I view bullion as insurance. I hope the house never burns down, but if it does, I can go buy a chicken. I want to have some accessible to me, whether that's buried in the rose garden or under the floorboards or someplace where I can get at some of it, uh, knowing that I have to bluff if there's a gun pointed at me. Uh, I want to have some bullion and um, a safe storage someplace. I would want to potentially have some bullion in another country, although one must realize that if, as a U.S. citizen, if I have gold in the Perth Mint or uh, some other 
faraway place and the pitchforks are coming up the road, that isn't going to do me one damn bit of good. So you have to be very careful about where you select your uh, holding places for your bullion. And you're absolutely right. There's nothing that can replace it in terms of counterparty risk. It is what it is, and it's safe, and it just sits right there. But I would never buy it with the intent of selling it because, A, I want to own my bullion privately and securely with an emphasis on both of those words. And I don't want to dig it up and haul it somewhere and then sell it and face regular taxable gains on it because there are no long-term capital gains breaks in the United States on bullion. Most people don't know that. Um, and um, to me, it is just that type of an asset. Now, on the other hand, if you want to trade in the precious metals market for profit, there's really, you know, the financial markets are the way to do it. And whether you use options or go on the futures exchange or whether you buy mining shares, those all will give you great leverage. And they each have their own risks, and one has to be very mindful of what they are and know thyself. Um, I've spent uh, the last 30 years getting to know the mining companies, the executives, the geologists. I've traveled around the world visiting the mines at the request of the companies. And um, I find that boots-on-the-ground research is invaluable, even when it's not a mining company, but particularly in this industry. And, um, you know, you can buy uh, big, you know, mega companies like the Newmonts and Barracks, and you can buy the little tiny, you know, holes in the ground with liars next to it, as Mark Twain used to call them, mm -hmm. um, or anybody in between. And I keep emphasizing to people that want to go off the deep end on risk to remind them that you can make plenty of money buying good quality gold and silver mining shares without going off into the middle of the Central African Republic or, or buying something that is, um, you know, possibly has a deposit. There's nothing wrong with doing those things with a portion of your capital, but you take a big quality company like First Majestic Silver, it's already up over 450% this year. You take a good quality gold mining company like B2 Gold, and it's up 230% this year. So there's a fair bit of money that can be made in these without having to take on excessive risk. You make a good point, and, and that really comes down to the second part of that question around position sizing. So we've got, is you know, it's like, uh, two heads of the same beast and and, the, and you've got the bullion side of things which provides you with, um, asset protection it provides you with um, uh, the lack of counterparty risk but at the same time it's it's quite frankly it's not as liquid as say gold corp or a, 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 a very liquidly traded stock and one of the things that um, I've found in my career and you've probably found it as well is that you can have a market which can be relatively liquid for a period of time and then can literally go no bid. Um, and the the resource stocks, um, specifically those that are um, juniors, have that attribute to them. So they can be extremely wild on the upside, but then at the same time they can literally go no bid. 
And you get the same thing in Absolutely. emerging emerging markets, um, and and that's something that in the past I've I've managed to misprice liquidity or liquidity risk in that you're trading what are essentially publicly listed stocks is an estimation that you will have liquidity, and you do until you don't, and so it, it requires I mean, a, an understanding of of that level of risk and being able to position size accordingly and um, and of course then you have human emotion which comes in because when you're doing well there's always uh, a feedback mechanism where your, your your brain and your endorphins say well this is this is going well i should do more of it right um and it's a little bit like eating too much ice cream right it tastes good the first yep. few bites and you keep going is all oh, this tastes really this is awesome you keep going and eventually you want to puke and so um, and then, and that's what happens: is the market pukes, and um, uh, and you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that. So, how do you go about position sizing with these asset classes? So you've got you've got bullion, you've got the mining companies, and then um, I don't know if you deal specifically in them, but the the junior miners or the sort of mid tier miners. Okay, so again, each person has to find their own level of. Um, where their conscience lies in terms of their bullion, whether it's 10 gold coins or 100 gold coins, or in ancient days you were very wealthy if you had 1,000 gold coins. Um, you just have to find a number that you're comfortable with and be satiated at. And I can't describe what that might be for you. I knew what my number was. It took me years to accumulate that, and I'm there. Again, um, I do deal in the juniors. In fact, I'm planning a trip to Argentina this fall. Uh, it's not cemented yet, but supposedly I'm going to go see five different projects down in uh, the southern part of Argentina, which is becoming more mining friendly now that they have a new government. Um, so you, I position uh, for client portfolios most of the money, 80 to 90 percent, in producing companies. As I mentioned earlier, there's plenty of money to be made in the producing companies. Um, but we'll take a little bit, and I'll put it in some of the developers. So these are companies that have a project that's already delineated. It may or may not be fully permitted, and it may or may not be fully funded. The ones that I bought are fully funded to production. So I know they're coming online next year, and um, you know there could always there's always some risk but they'll get a higher valuation once they begin producing. Uh, there are, you know, other situ every company, just like any other stock, they all have their own unique stories. And one could be hung up by a streaming deal, and uh, you know that at some point that's going to be resolved, and then the stock's going to get revalued again. Uh, one another company could be hung up by, you know, a, somebody making a wrong decision on a permit, that uh, really all the constituents felt was right, but somehow they got it wrong and they didn't get the memo and they said no on a permit. And you know that that's going to be overturned in a certain length of time or in some portion of time. And when that happens, the stock will get revalued again. Um, but I personally will also have invested uh, money in you know smaller companies. And there's a dozen or so companies that are um, you know just... I wouldn't call them dreams, but you know they're situated in the right place, you know, right adjacent to a company that has a fantastic vein, and you know that God 
put that vein right across their borders before there was mankind put a line in the sand. And at some point, somebody's going to drill there, and they're going to hit that vein, and the stock's going to get valued. And those are the things that, um, you know, are, are the dreams that make some of these stocks go 10 for 1 or even 100 for 1. Um, those are very, very rare cases, those big numbers, but they can happen. Uh, these tiny little stocks, uh, you know, 7, 10, 20 cents, you know, they can move to a dollar during the course of this bull market or more. But as you said, there are many different types of risks with them. There's uh, geology risk. There's uh, management risk. There's financing risk. There's um, uh, Murphy's Law. <laughs> and it, and uh, there's also geopolitical risk can't be lessened uh, you know, or, or uh, diminished because there's always geopolitical risk. Um, even when sometimes you think they're in safe jurisdictions, sometimes things can go weird. And then, of course, you have what you stressed earlier, liquidity risk, particularly on these little stocks that may only trade in Vancouver with a, you know, a spread as wide as a bus to drive through them. Um, you may have a no bid one day because, you know, the CEO took all the money or because, as we experienced in 1994, the geologist fell out of a helicopter. Um, of course, you know, that was a fraud from the start, Brex, but these things happen. So um, I... I can't stress to people enough to be very careful and know what you're doing uh, when you're buying the very early startup exploration companies. Uh, there are many different shades of juniors, so I, I you know, want to make sure people know that juniors can be a junior miner, could be a junior developer, uh, and also can be a junior explorer, and there are other shades of gray in between. Yeah, now you make a good point. I mean, that, what you're dealing with is the end of that risk spectrum. It's like buying um, early stage private companies um, to a certain extent, accepting that there is a level of liquidity with them, right? Um, but that liquidity, as we know, dependent either on cycle or due to some influence that is specific to the company, can vaporize. And so one of the things that you know, I've told clients before is to look at some of these things as if they are private companies. If you invest in them with the with the thought that they are actually private, while they're publicly listed and there's a there's a there's a ticker um, and there is a certain level of liquidity, if you if you come at it from that viewpoint, then what you typically land up doing is you start analyzing the risk very differently. Um, and and that's that's a lesson that I learned for some over some years where I didn't I never did that I went in thinking this is fine these are liquid stocks I can get in and I can get out well that's partially true only partially true um, so I think if you look at it as if it was a an early stage private deal um, then you assess the risk quite differently and you position size accordingly and you don't get burned because as Warren Buffett has so eloquently and um, uh, said many times, the first rule of um, investing is don't lose money. So if you day. were to put, uh, you know, a hundred and let's say you were to put two hundred thousand dollars into, you know, quality miners, uh, you might put uh, ten to twenty thousand tops into some of the highly speculative ones. It's like you know, it's like any other risk pyramid. Mm -hmm. You put the bulk of your money in the lower risk items and you put a little bit in your Las Vegas money 
and you know you have to scale it accordingly yeah yeah very good so one of the yeah, let's um let's change tack a little bit larry looking at fractional reserve banking the what the central banks have been doing now for quite some time and at a at an increasing pace post 2008 really if we look at what what's been happening with the increase in debt with the money printing with the um, lowering of interest rates to levels that that the world has never seen before all of those factors on the face of it would be considered or could be considered to be very bullish for gold however as that's been taking place it hasn't translated um, up until recently into a move into into the precious metals do you have any sort of thoughts on why that might be or what it is that market participants that had expected such a result have maybe been missing okay well what are the drivers for the bull market that's a good question and i believe we can identify a few of them and there are some we won't know until we look in the rearview mirror from the future so clearly we have had all the available supply or large available supply in western stocks in london and in europe and in possibly in the u.s have been drained out and have gone to china um, their demand has been very, very high. But ironically, a few nights ago, it, I looked at the numbers again, and I realized that Russia has been buying more gold for the last six months, at least, than China has. China's always the one that everybody speaks of, but actually Russia's been a bigger buyer. And um, the whole Russian thing is very, very interesting on a in the big game, the big chess game, uh, on the on the board, um, a lot of very interesting things have been reading about that. Um, so, one of the things I'd read regarding that was that back in December of 2015, uh, GLD's gold holdings had dropped down to about 630 tons, which just happened to be the exact day that the U.S. approved the long-delayed IMF reforms and repealed the U.S. 40-year-old crude export ban. And that was kind of interesting. I didn't know it until I, I read about that. And then sometime after that, um, the GLB holdings have added 50% um, more inventory in less than six months. And that only happened twice before in the last 11 years. And each time, the prior two times, that was followed by not only a 15% drop in the dollar index, but a doubling in the gold prices in the ensuing two years. And it's also kind of interesting, and this is a bit off the gold market subject, but it relates to the gold market, that the deal that China and Russia cut a couple of years ago where they were going to start dealing in each other's currency and bypassing the dollar. And uh, I think it was David Pearls out of when there was a Mideast crisis a few years ago, and it was Daniel Pearl that had died, and someone yelled, you know, the dollar is dead. Well, that was sort of the beginning of a number of events. And what I'm getting at here is the anti-dollar trade out there. Um, 
and Russia is been involved in Iraq, and this is, and the reason I bring that up is that we've had three Gulf Wars in Iraq, and they each occurred when Iraqi oil production breached the three million barrel a day point. The Iran-Iraq War, the first Gulf War, and the second Gulf War. This time around, Russia went into Iraq to into Syria to launch airstrikes and it started cooperation with Iraq. And now Iraqi oil production is not only above three million barrels a day, it's above four million barrels a day. And why would Russia be supporting the Iraq oil fields when that's a competitor to them? Well, Iraq's oil goes to China and India and South Korea mainly. So are they being the muscle for China and willing to give up some of their oil territory or oil you know, pricing power in order to be more of a force? Something's going on there. And it has to do with gold because those countries are not only buying gold, but I believe they may be somehow settling some of their payments in gold. And so these are some of the behind-the-scenes things that we don't hear about and think about every day, but they relate to the gold market, but we can't really put our fingers on them because they're not really visible. You can only get clues. So there's that going on. You probably read about the theory of six months ago or so, there was an article published about the inverse correlation between the Nikkei and the gold market since 2011. That supposedly someone had gotten tipped off that uh, the Bank of Japan was going to depreciate the yen, so some large interests went long the Nikkei, and they shorted gold at the same time. And if you look at the correlation between the Nikkei and gold up until just recently, they have a perfect inverse correlation down to the very, you know, not very large swings. Every medium-sized swing has been perfectly inversely correlated. So maybe as the Nikkei has been um, ruling over here and some of that position has been unwinding for the last six months, perhaps uh, some of those gold shorts are getting covered and that's helping drive some of that market too. Um, there's never just one cockroach. And, I, that's, I, you know, you have to try to put as many dots together as you can. And when you see enough of them line up, you make your bet, as you know. And it seems that all these things are very bullish for the metals market. People are extremely concerned about social tensions in various parts of the world, particularly the uh, southern part of Europe and some parts, some other parts of Europe. You have your political uh, tensions going on around the world, uh, this wave of populism going on, such as Brexit and per the Trump phenomenon here in the United States. Um, and I might mention that I've spoken with others, such as yourself, that are outside of our country here in the U.S., and they're wondering how the leaders of the free world could possibly elect either one of these two people. Yeah, I mean, you've you know, got... So they're concerned about that, too. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I mean, I, I've long since had the opinion that most politicians are complete psychopaths. But what you've got in, in the U.S. now is essentially criminal that is being failed to be put behind bars versus... Um, Someone you know, would... We really don't know what he's going to do one way or the other. 
And and then versus a reality TV star that really doesn't seem to care too much about what anybody, th- which right, is right. being seen as being a, a breath of fresh air. But if one was to simply dial back the clock and say, well, hang on a second, did of a who would we vote for? What is the kind of person that we would like to elect to power? I don't think either of these parties would would come onto the playing field. Nevertheless, that's that's the that's the situation that you have. And the other aspect, and I've mentioned this many times before, and it's been proven by statistics. And this is not just in the United States; it's in Europe; it's in any democratic country. Is that the vast majority of people do not vote for somebody, but they vote against somebody. They, they 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 look at someone and they go, "Oh my gosh, I hate that guy," or "I hate that that woman." And I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that they don't get into power, and therefore I will vote for the the opposite. That's so, very true. That's very true. On my recent trip to the Midwest to visit clients, uh, I encountered uh, that specifically. It was not that they were so much for the one candidate, but they were so vehemently against the other candidate that that's how that determined how they were going to cast their vote. Us to encapsulate what we've just mentioned, it's political uncertainty. Uncertainty on not just a US base, but on a global scale. And that uncertainty translates into a lack of liquidity, into a drying up of liquidity, and a risk premium. So, And we didn't even cover the fact, Chris, that there is the financial uncertainty, the amount of leverage in the world today is even greater. The amount of debt is far greater, far greater than it was in 2008. It may not be all focused on the housing market as it was back then. We now have other problems like auto loans and student loans, and and we still have Greece, and we still have Spain, and we still have those issues which have not gone away. They've only been extended into the future. And um, we now have the phenomenon of negative interest rates, which alone could send the price of metals several times higher, um, which is, a, a, you know, uh, maybe you can um, explain to me how we're going to uh, eventually resolve $13 trillion in negative interest rate bonds that are out there. I don't have any answers for you on that one, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> and and in, truth, and in truth, nobody does. I think, and, you know, I've discussed this recently with Raul Powell, there, there will be some level adjustment. It has to take place. And whether that comes via a... Um, a writing off of, of debt or um, you know debt repudiation it it has to happen at some point we don't we simply don't know when or how that takes place and the way to position accordingly is to be aware that it exists and to understand that that uh, probability grows with every single day that passes and that is I think really for me one of the key reasons to own gold is that you have this unknown and and it's not just an unknown it's an unknown of unimaginable size which when it does eventually succumb to gravity will be of uh, it will make that 2008 crisis that we enjoyed really look like a speed bump on the way to a concrete barrier so you know we did the timing is so difficult you don't you just don't know and as you you stated, you know, debt can either be paid off, which at this point, well, long ago seemed impossible. It can be inflated away or it can be defaulted on. And it's going to be one of the last two choices that governments are going to do, as they've done for centuries. Uh, I do want to bring, go back one couple of steps we talked about. I forgot to mention something you, uh, regarding the, where we are in the cycle. 
I had a conversation with a mining company executive two weeks ago, and I said, so where are we, where are you now in terms of, um, you know, the interest out there? So he said, well, that's a really good question, Larry. Of course, the gold funds, they're dedicated, and they own us, and they're, you know, you know, they're fully invested in the areas they need to be. Although I will mention that a prior conversation to this one, another mining company guy said the gold funds are underinvested in the juniors and the smaller companies. This was about four weeks ago. So now two weeks ago, this conversation, he said, from the generalist funds, meaning your typical mutual fund out there that eventually will put money into a sector when they think it's right, whether it be resources or gold or what have you. He says, so far, and this is a company, Chris, with a $3.5 billion Canadian market cap. It's, not, it's a mid to upper size gold miner, big company. They had only received one model request from a generalist so far. He said that the large funds out there they have bought a speck of only companies with larger than a $5 billion market cap. They've only touched, and in a, the slightest way, the majors. So the generalist money is still not in this game yet. And I don't know what will turn them to and when they will go, but that I have noticed throughout the last six-month period where I've actually sold and rebought three times already because I'm just as gun-shy as the next guy about, you know, the down market that we went through in four or five years of not repeating, you know, that type of a drop. And with the level of ascent that these stocks have taken since January, one is expecting, it should expect a correction of meaningful size any time, maybe as much as 25%. The corrections have been short and shallow and of two-week durations and if you don't get right back in quick you've missed it and I have noticed you just watch the flows and you can see every time there's any kind of a small dip in these things you can see the money coming in and buying them and supporting the price the flows are very very strong into this sector and we saw it just again this last uh, week ago we had sold on the 12th and uh, last Monday, Tuesday, my guts and my everything, all my other signals said it's time to go back in. We went back in, and you could just see them turn on a dime. So there's there's money that's just waiting to buy this stuff. Uh, at least when I say stuff, I mean these mining companies, and I'm talking about the liquid, you know, juniors and majors. Um, so that's another sign for me that plus my conversation that I mentioned to you that we're still quite early in this game. Okay, let me. I'm going to throw a rock at that, Larry, because that's what we should always do, right? And I agree with everything right. that you're saying. So, if we look at the overall stock market, we're at all-time highs. We are almost certainly going into a recession. I say almost certainly because we don't know for sure. But if that is the case, then we look and we say, okay, that's a risk off. When you have mutual funds that are taking capital off the table in a recessionary period, then the question becomes, do the, do the miners get hit just as bad, just as badly? What is your take on that? That is, that is an excellent question. I guess I will have to react as I see how they behave as the market begins its descent, if and when it does. And I assume it will at some point. Uh, we're 
do, and we are at highs and we are overvalued. Um, and it goes back to the central bankers and their negative interest rates, and they push down on the balloon on one end, and it pops up in terms of high PEs and money chasing anything that pays a dividend because you can't get any interest in the bank. And what will cause that to happen to end? I don't know. A and B. When it starts ending, how will the gold complex react to that? And it's very difficult to answer to know. I mean, in 08, we saw, you know, this sector go down with everything else only to be one of the first things to rebound as well. Um, when there's liquidity, I know you focus a lot on that word, and it's a good thing to always keep in mind. Uh, when people need liquidity, when their stocks are going down, when the margin calls go out, well, they'll sell anything to raise capital. And that may include their their GLD or their gold or their gold miner stocks. And they could get carried away with that. And maybe that is what, uh, when we get the 25% drop in these things or greater. And I would make a maybe a prediction that that's not going to be the end of the bull market, but it could be an interruption in it. Last question, Larry. We talk about this rise in gold. We talk about the debt, and that's um, debt globally. But if we look purely at the U.S., gold typically has been roughly inverse to the dollar, just like oil. Oil is, is matching inverse to the dollar. What are your thoughts with respect to my supposition that we are still in a dollar bull market and that we can have both a bull market in the dollar as well as a bull market in gold? Do you, Those, that, that has happened for periods of time, um, for as long as I've been in the markets, and that could go on for an unknown length of time. Uh, many people are fond of saying that the U.S. currency is still the nicest horse in the glue factory. Uh, and I would agree with that. And money is slowing here. At the same time, it's flowing into gold for some of the similar reasons for safety. Um, China needs to always be in the back of your mind because their economy and their currency, they want to have a much bigger seat at the table. And uh, I don't know that they're necessarily going to be a world reserve currency, but their comeuppance, possibly with a gold-backed yuan in the, future, in the future, may take the dollar from being the world reserve currency to being a world currency. And that may take it off its throne from being the leader, and that could end up being the separation between the gold and the dollar at some point. But it's certainly possible they could continue to run concurrently for a while. Historically, they have always gone their separate ways. They've been inversely correlated. Very good. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time, Larry. It's been fascinating and, as always, an absolute pleasure talking to you. And until we next speak, keep well. You as well, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.